Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park, and also not about that, too. and also a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode one, Introduction, the InGen Incident, recorded here in an icy post-emergency Canada on February 24th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. First off, another big thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail. Uh, check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Hummingbird, and our outro is Sacrifice to the Inhuman Creature. To start with some corrections from last episode in an effort to remain as accurate as possible. First, there are seven types of triangles, not three. The soup spoon goes on the right of the knives, and Mickey Rooney was five foot and one half inches tall, not three apples high. Seriously, I'm, I'm sorry for any confusion and discomfort these errors of mine may have caused you. I'm sorry. If you have any feedback or corrections to mail in, please contact me at ryansrogers at gmail.com. We have some dinosaur news. A new species of crocodile dating back to the Cretaceous period has been discovered in Queensland, Australia, and its last meal was a young dinosaur, scientists say. The fossilized bones of Confractosuchus soroctonus were excavated in 2010 from somewhere near the Winton Formation. Inside the stomach of the two and a half meter long crocodile, scientists identified the partly digested remnants of a young ornithopod, which was composed of a near complete skull. While they were unable to classify the young dinosaur inside the stomach, they described it as a juvenile weighing nearly 1.7 kilos. That's like half the size of a small adult cat. Which species might the little ornithopod have been? There are a few known late Cretaceous ornithopods from Australia that may have been related to this croc's last meal. Cenomanian ornithopods from the Greenman Creek Formation include the approximately three-foot-long Weewarasaurus and a slightly larger Fulgurotherium and the much larger Fostoria, which would have been up to like 15 feet long. They're all lightly built, bipedal, toothed and beaked animals that may have had bristly tails and grabbing hands and arms. In other news, an Argentinian abelosaur reported in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. Guimichia Ochoa I was a species of abelosaurid, a clade of carnivores which roamed the southern hemisphere, known from South America, Africa, and India. A partially complete skull uncovered in Argentina offers a valuable insight into an area which has very few abelosaur fossils, and may go some way to explain why the area gave rise to such unusual animals. The abelosaurs track their origins back to the Middle Jurassic, and by the late Cretaceous are known to have stocky hind limbs, extensive bony ornamentations like grooves and splits in their skull, with vestigial forelimbs, meaning forearms, that were absurdly small. They're known for their shorter skull, bony crests above their eyes, and were between 17 and 30 feet long. In other news, Iberian Peninsula's largest yet discovered titanosaur reported in Nature Ecology and Evolution. Abditosaurus kunui, the late Cretaceous titanosaur from the Iberian Peninsula, which is like, think, southern Spain and France, 
is believed to have been about 60 feet long, weighing 14 tons. And that's quite large compared against, quote, smaller medium-sized titanosaurs known from this region. The specific name honors German paleontologist Walter Kuhne, or Walter Kuhn, or however the Germans pronounced it back then, who first discovered the fossils in the area back in the 1950s. Titanosaurs are like arm lizards with huge forearms larger than their hind limbs, with long upward-stretching necks, pencil-shaped teeth for stripping plants efficiently, and they're known from all over the globe and are a diverse group that became some of the largest land animals ever known. Their nostrils were large, they had crests over their nasal bones, and they had long tails, a wide stance, stockier forelimbs than hind limbs, they're known to have osteoderms in their heights and to have lost some of their finger bones somewhere down the line. So they're interesting. And finally, we have another Iberian Spinosaur that was reevaluated in PLOS One. A fossil found decades ago has been reclassified as a new species by paleontologists Octavio Mateus and Dario Estreviz Lopez from the Nova School of Science and Technology in Lisbon. It was previously identified as a baryonyx. Though the fossils were discovered decades ago, they've been studied and reclassified as a new species. The paleontologists' new research points to Western Europe as a possible starting place for spinosaurs, but more evidence is needed. The diversity of spinosaurids in the area at that time suggests that they may have a late Jurassic origin in the area, but that's just a hypothesis. Spinosaurids are known to be early to mid-Cretaceous, large, bipedal carnivores with crocodilian-like jaws that were long, low, and narrow. The tips of their upper and lower jaws fanned out in a spoon-shaped structure behind which was a notch in their upper jaw. Their nostrils were retracted further back on the head than in most other theropods, and they had bony crests on their heads in the midline of their skulls. They had robust shoulders, stocky forelimbs with three-fingered hands, and an enlarged claw on the first digit. The upwards projecting neural spines were elongated and formed a sail on their back which may have been skin or a fatty hump. They were at least partially piscivarious with a semi-aquatic lifestyle. If Iberospinus were more like a baryonyx than a spinosaurus, it wouldn't have had as prominent a dorsal spine. Okay, well, moving on to the interview today, please give a warm welcome to my guests this week, two dudes, Lindsay Longpre and Phil Longpre. <laughs> uh, fun fact, Lindsay and Phil and I all met outside of a trucker protest in, in Parliament in Ottawa, so it was fun. <laughs> you guys were real friendly, and it was uh, nice to catch up. <laughs> Phil brought the bouncy castle. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I brought the hot tub. <laughs> it was nice to have you uh, on the show with me. So to, Thanks to, for inviting us. Yes. Yeah, we're really happy to be part of your podcast, Ryan. <laughs> all right, well, you say that now. Um <laughs> So to start off, what rank would you give yourselves in relation to, to the novel? Would you say you're beginners or rookies? Would you have like emeritus status or just super fans? Where do you fall on the spectrum of how much you, you, you care for this thing? Uh, I would say I'm a super fan of Jurassic Park, mm -hmm. um, having read it in my youth uh, and also grown up with the movies being a huge part of our social awareness and kind of something cool that everybody is aware of yeah and i am a complete rookie beginner <laughs> when it comes to reading the novel although of course i've seen all the movies because what millennial has not but um yeah i just i have actually just started reading the novel okay right on 
And uh, beyond, you know, my desperate groveling, what interested you guys in, in being on the show to talk about Jurassic Park with me? <laughs> the opportunity to talk to Ryan Rogers, oh, yeah. always one that I cannot resist, mm-hmm. uh, but also the opportunity to talk about something that's as cool as Jurassic Park uh, will always pique my interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know I always like talking about books with you, Ryan, so... Yes, you both have the wit of a Stephen Fry when you make me sound good, so there you go. <laughs> uh, so generally speaking, uh, what do you remember maybe from the, like, the first time you'd seen the movie? What memories do you have from, from that whole period in time? Wow. Um, <laughs> probably just how grand the movie was. Yeah. And how impressively realistic it seemed... And the science that they portrayed kind of gave a whole new spin to what was possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and besides the massive amounts of puberty that we were going through <laughs> at the time, uh, um, I remember this just like, this was the movie that changed CGI. It was the movie that everyone was waiting for, that big summer blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And I, I just remember seeing it with my parents and being absolutely thrilled and terrified and excited and it i think it's in you know my top 10 movies of all time like just it's it was life-changing to watch jurassic park and i you know i became obsessed with the um you know the the making of jurassic park oh for documentaries sure that they would put out and and i remember them saying how they came up with the sounds for the tyrannosaurus rex and um, you know, to make them sound lifelike, a sound that they've never heard before. And so, yeah, I was all wrapped up in that. And then how they had to to dry off the, the animatronic dinosaur <laughs> because it would start shaking. So all, all that stuff, like the behind-the-scenes stuff, really sort of thrilled me and my imagination. And, uh, yeah, it's, I would say it's part of our our formative years. Like, it's a it's such a, an important movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the dinosaurs were as big as the the, the <laughs> gigantic amounts of puberty we were going through. That's great. <laughs> um, so, Phil, you were telling me that that you actually found your old copy of the book that you had, and uh, and um, after seeing the movie and reading the book, that uh, you were interested in looking for more Michael Crichton novels to to get into and i think that's a fairly common experience with people uh do you remember what other kind of books you found of michael Crichton's that you you're interested in uh, i know that the very next one that i read uh was andromeda strain mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty pertinent to today <laughs> um super virus um and then obviously waiting for a lot of his work um uh, i followed it for lost world i remember having my copy reserved and going to my local bookstore and picking it up and probably finishing it that first weekend because it was so exciting to continue the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how are they really going to do that? Yeah, that's cool. Andromeda Strain, Lost World, for sure. Yeah, and they would have been uh, Andromeda Strain would have been pretty accessible. I think that was the big one that you could probably find without any trouble. Yeah, an easy one to find, and then I think I made my way through most of his library. Yeah. Um, but Andromeda Strain, Sphere, uh, the Jurassic Park series were probably the highlights and yeah. the ones that I uh, read first or most often because they've kind of stuck in my brain. Mm-hmm. And Lindsay, you haven't even read the book. How did how did you I, watch I the movie? And I feel so bad because it's, it's been sitting on our living room book. 
myself for, you know, however long we've been together. 23 years. Yeah. <laughs> and... I haven't even cracked it. I, yeah, I'm a terrible delinquent English teacher Mm -hmm. slash Michael Crichton fan. So I have no excuses. I just, you know, I've been a terrible, terrible delinquent. (laughs) And, and you should be castigated accordingly. You, um, (laughs) so you guys have been dating since like preschool. Do you, did you guys go and see any of these movies uh, together? (laughs) years that we had not even met because it was right before high school right mm. when did the movie come out 93 that's 93. right yeah so we would have been in grade seven i think so yeah we, we met in grade nine <laughs> boy your world changes back then eh? <laughs> <laughs> well that's interesting well and but you could have seen the second or the third one together i think we did i'm i'm sure that we would have seen if not the lost world i know that we've seen the the last few um because now we have kids and now we want to share that with them mm-hmm. yeah so definitely the the remakes or the sequels have been a, a part of our kids growing up too and we're like are they old enough mm-hmm. can they handle it i think it's uh, i think it's every excuse for us to watch <laughs> every parent seems to have this urge to show it to their child before it's way way before it's appropriate and then yeah. it, <laughs> I, I think we just can't wait, you know, like, yes. we, we want to share all the amazing movies. Like, I I remember, you know, being so excited to show uh, our son the Back to the Future series and, uh, <laughs> it, it, like, just all the movies from the 80s and 90s that we grew up with. Mm-hmm. We just want to make, make sure that they have their proper film education. <laughs> yeah. yeah, over here, it was like, oh, you like Dinosaur Train? Here, let me make you face mortality for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> You'll t- never look at your reflection the same again. <laughs> yeah. Is a Tyrannosaur going to go through the car and eat them? Yeah. <laughs> is it going to open the door to your bedroom and get you in your sleep? <laughs> Hell yes, it is. <laughs> so, Phil, you went above and beyond. You actually opted to try rereading your copy of the book in preparation for, for this moment, um, which, you know, take note to future guests that this is unnecessary, but it's awesome. Uh, and I, we have a friend who would say your self-worth is a direct positive correlation to your commitment to being a good guest on a podcast. So, uh, I, I endeavor to be invited again. That is all. Um, you mentioned after reading the first few chapters in preparation that beyond the omissions of like cell phones, that the story feels contemporary. It doesn't feel dated or out of place. No, I think especially with a focus on the science, Mm -hmm. um, and the community that gets affected from the nurses working in Costa Rica to the doctors, I believe at Columbia, that get uh, samples sent to them and are trying to figure out whether it's a lizard or something else. Uh, it, it seems real. And the amount that we rely on science now um, and those that are fighting science uh, in the current uh, political spectrum, that it's uh, it's pretty contemporary as far as how it feels. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's already 30 years old. And I think that's also a testament to science fiction as a genre, that it's very prophetic, it looks forward, uh, and so the science that they're talking about, of being able to use DNA 
uh, to extract it from amber to uh, be able to splice it with other animals. It's uh, it definitely feels like something that could be happening right now. For sure, yeah. I, we haven't made that step into the next where it seems like that's commonly going. It still feels like we're on that vanguard, even though it's been thirty something years for no reason. Right, it, and that was one of the the beautiful things about the movie is I think that little uh, cartoon that they <laughs> were forced to watch in their rotating cinema. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of brought the technology uh, right into your right into your lap. And also made it seem really plausible. I was like, well, absolutely. All you got to find is some mosquitoes and amber. Drill in. Take that blood. Find some frogs. Maybe some that don't, like, spontaneously change gender uh, in the wild. Uh, that seems like something they could have maybe researched a little more heavily. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if they had any one flaw in their planning, it was using but, <laughs> unknown frogs. Just, in general, the the story is uh, is today. Yeah. Well, it's from... funny. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I just say like in I don't know if you did House of or I think it's just called Land of Rising Sun or Rising Sun, and like the whole science in that one was like image manipulation is uh, very very advanced in Japan, and so they can commit crimes and give you evidence because the photos have been doctored and you'll never know, and we can get away with crimes now. And it's like, that's a little dated. Everybody knows you can doctor a photo now. But, but when that book came out, it's like, oh my God, you can do that? Uh, but this one, we're still kind of in the lurch. We don't we, we don't know what biotech can do, and it's interesting. And one of the things that the book talks about is how many companies there are that we have no idea about. Mm-hmm. Unless you're a big uh, company that's trying to buy tech or have people manufacture tech for you, we have no idea what's going on in those labs because they're no longer purely academic. It's about making the money and uh, continuing to grow profits instead of uh, to improve science. Mm-hmm. And I guess you could appreciate how like the first act of the book is significantly different from the first act of the film. They almost have, like, nothing in common. Yeah, like, he really sets up that indictment of capitalism, right, and how it poisons the scientific inquiry process, and um, it's really, like, a tale of warning in the beginning mm-hmm. about the dangers of commodifying uh, science and truth and facts, right? So it was, like, I'm just, I've just barely scratched the surface, just barely, just maybe 50 pages in mm-hmm. and um yeah I'm, I'm definitely seeing how they're setting that up and even in the introduction right um sort of fictional introduction setting the scene for um almost i don't know it's i don't know if it's like a morality sort of thing but um definitely those ethical questions come in like we shouldn't be playing god and um we should definitely not be um commoditizing the scientific process mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah i think there's a, a general theme of that that like we were saying that that spider-man theme of with great power comes great responsibility and this is yeah. like a cautionary tale of what happens yeah. when someone uh doesn't respect or take it acts irresponsibly with with power and and this is kind of and then it plays out uh, obviously you get cloned dinosaurs uh, is what happens when <laughs> yeah i also like how he sets it up with like these sort of these little vignettes right so these ultra short chapters 
Um, and it's, it makes it fast paced and I feel like mm-hmm. a sense of urgency and, and, uh, you know, they're wondering what's happening. Um, it's exciting. It's an exciting start. Mm-hmm. And there's a, what catches your attention right away, especially in that introduction is, is there is this, this foreshadowing that bad things are going to happen. Like this, we mm-hmm. got this big company and it will be bankrupt within days after this terrible incident. Um, and, and yeah, Crichton uses foreshadowing, you know, heavy handedly. He paints it with a thick brush there, mm-hmm. right in there. And it's been interesting. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things, uh, you, you were mentioning you wanted to kind of keep a low key on what you do and who you are, but, uh, you, you teach English. Yes, I do. And, uh, <laughs> so Crichton doesn't use a lot of early Victorian prose or anything like that <laughs> when he's describing these pretty, pretty, uh, bland in that respect but he did apply a few literary techniques and one of them was foreshadowing he uses it extraordinarily well throughout the book and i I was wondering if you would like to evaluate some of the uh literary techniques that he did use sure okay Um, first one was he that he described this all as a scientific gold rush and i thought mm -hmm. i like that one that's a good metaphor that really uh gives you that image of people looking to make their buck stake their claim fly out and, and you know the, the dusty crusty prospector people you know changing their whole lives to try and get out there and, and get it before somebody else and i thought there was a that metaphor really really captured the image that i think he was going for i thought that's a great for metaphor sure. i thought um and, it, and then if you extend that to like literary criticism mm-hmm. um if you look at ecological criticism which is a big um sort of it's a a new movement in literature. Okay. Um, and we look at the, the implications of that, mm-hmm. of the gold rush, just in, in real life. What did the gold rush do? It, it decimated geological materials. People made their, their quick bucks and, and left scars in the environment. The gold rush in itself is a cautionary tale, right? It's that total imbalance of greed versus our natural supplies of the earth and us being stewards of the earth. So, if you extend that to Crichton's discussion of dinosaurs and, and nature and really just exploiting nature, then we can see with that gold rush metaphor that nature is going to suffer here. And perhaps it will affect us in the long run, mm-hmm. right? We, we're going to suffer these implications of these crazy scientific experiments and developments. So... And I think you make an interesting point. We'll have to keep a, put a pin in that and follow along with because I know that Hammond brings it up once or twice in the book as well, and I think Malcolm fights him about it because they got to fight or else it wouldn't be drama. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this whole like cap, uh, catching the that the the world is going to end, the environment is falling apart, and the, the end of the world is coming. And Malcolm's kind of a counter to that because he's like, you know, the world will survive. Maybe species will go extinct, but that's not the case. Um, but yeah, the whole idea that that the gold rush, that mining, that I think I think there's even a comment about uh, Malcolm makes about raping and denuding the land, um, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, even I think he even shames Sattler a little bit at some point where he says, "Do you actually repair the 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 badlands after you've dug them up?" And she says, "No." Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's yeah, a lot of like that, that colonial mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can just walk into any lands and take what I want and exploit it uh, for my own gain whether it whether it's you know knowledge or um riches that you can't expect to go into nature and and do this and and not have 
you know, serious negative consequences as a result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great point. I love that. <laughs> Slam dunk. That's why you're here, Lindsay. <laughs> well, I think that's... Ryan, on, on top of that, yeah. when you talk about the gold rush, I think of gold fever, mm-hmm. and one of the great visuals uh, from the movie is when they first see the dinosaurs, and the lawyer thinks, yeah. we're going to make a fortune. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he spent the whole time being so negative, and he's like, I'm going to shut you down. But in the end, the almighty dollar was all the motivation that he needed. He's like, this is all we need. Mm-hmm. This, will, this will fix everything. As I've been looking at the introduction in that Gennaro, I, there's a scene at the end where, where Grant grabs Gennaro, pins him against the wall, and really gives it to him. And I thought, boy, it seems odd. Like, there doesn't seem to be a good reason that these two even know each other, let alone he would be this aggravated with the lawyer. But with with uh, in this world that the introduction sets up, there are no checks and balances that Hammond is able to kind of move unregulated, um, to do whatever he wants. And the only thing that was holding him responsible was the lawyer who is representing the investors. And right. I couldn't, because that part just seemed to stick out like a sore thumb at the end. But maybe it's Grant is finally saying, the one person who was able to hold this guy responsible, hold, you know, he controlled the purse strings. And he let him do it anyhow, even though there was signal after signal after signal that, hey, this has got to stop. And Gennaro was given instructions. Like, there's one one good reason to close it down, shut the whole thing down right away, without delay. And he sees it, and you're right. He sees it, and he goes, we're going to make a fortune on this place. And he stops. And then, I guess, from that second on, all life that was lost on the island would be in his hands. And uh, probably everything preceding that was in his hands, because he was the one controlling the purse strings. And it's not spelt out clearly, but I think that's the only explanation I could get why Grant would be so angry with him at the end. He's, for some reason, dosing out uh, um, justice. <laughs> yeah, a very cool start to the book. Yeah, I would love... Would make a lovely prequel. <laughs> Maybe. Like a prequel movie, if you saw like those first five years of fundraising um, and the initial discovery and who had it, who discovered it, was it shown to Hammond? Did Hammond seek it out? I'd love to hear more about that and have it kind of dramatized because I think that would that would make for good reading, but also a, a pretty spectacular film. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Netflix has three scripts being optioned right now on it. So, oh, probably. <laughs> send your podcast, Ryan. Send this podcast to Steven Spielberg, and it would just be the prequel. Will just be a podcast about yeah <laughs> <laughs> on Netflix coming soon. <laughs> well we could talk about this forever i'm sure but uh the rule in show business is to leave audiences wanting more so uh you have to let me thank you for taking some time out of uh, uh out of your day where you're not bathing children and things like that and hiding in your car so you can do a podcast with yeah me. Uh, we, yeah we did, this is not the only time we hide in the car so. <laughs> well i'm glad i i'm glad i could join you this time um i really appreciate it and i love that we could catch up again so i want to say thanks to my guest today Phil and Lindsay from uh, the trucker protest outside of Ottawa. You guys ever, <laughs> you guys ever want to come back and do this again? Any, any uh, time. Of course. Okay. All right. Great. Well, I'm going to keep reading, Ryan. So I'll be <laughs> even more prepared. That's perfect. All right. What a terrific interview with those two. Uh, one of these days, I will learn how to do a segue better. But until then, uh, moving on.
with our synopsis of, uh, of our chapter this week. So let's get into our chapter-by-chapter chapter review of Jurassic Park. Today we're going over Introduction, the InGen Incident. So, uh, as a synopsis, this is an essay by Crichton that outlines that biotechnology and genetic engineering have been rushed with furious haste for profits. The biotechnology revolution differs in three important respects from past scientific transformations. One, it is broad-based. 500 corporations spend $5 billion a year on biotechnology. Two, much of the research is thoughtless or frivolous. And three, the work is uncontrolled. Most concerning, quote, no watchdogs are found among scientists themselves, unquote. Scientists are no more ethical in pursuing science than the capitalists pursuing the science. The whimsical use of biotechnology should concern us all, and everyone is a stakeholder. Science is no longer pursued for the betterment of mankind, Crichton argues. Galileo proceeded with, quote, science as a free and open inquiry into the workings of nature, unquote. Scientists traditionally operated above politics and war, rebelling against secrecy in research and frowning upon patents, working for the betterment of all mankind. Crichton labels a clear moment when the betterment of all switched to patents for profits, April 1976. Venture capitalist Robert Swanson bankrolled biochemist Herbert Boyer, or Hibert Boyer, or however that's pronounced, uh, and those are both real people, to launch Genetech, a real business whose Wikipedia page includes no mention of Jurassic Park. They, standing on the shoulders of giants, those giants being British researchers James Watson and Francis Crick, who deciphered the structure of DNA, launched a trend-setting, gene-splicing new world of genetic engineering enterprise. This led to a, quote, significant shift in attitude, says Crichton. We're told of the InGen incident, where fewer than 20 people were on a remote island off the west coast of Costa Rica in the final two days of August 1989, and only a handful survived. By October 5th, 1989, InGen was bankrupt. There's some terrific foreshadowing there. So here's our discussion. This begins as an essay from Crichton arguing that the commercialization of science, and in this specific case biotechnology, is leading to sloppy work rushed forward in pursuit of questionable ambitions, ignorant of the potential catastrophic consequences. This is Crichton doing some world building, setting the stage upon which Jurassic Park is possible. If you consider a bizarro world that is built opposite to our Jurassic Park world, we'd have a scientific landscape that is cautious, pursuing goals that better mankind under strict and proven guidelines and protocols. In this bizarro world, opposite of our Crichton's world, Jurassic Park would not be possible. This is like the gravelly movie trailer voice guy saying, In a world where knives are straws and bowls are hats, one man stands strong against a pelican. We throw out everything we know about our world and allow ourselves to live in the world presented by the author. Belief suspended. Now, I'm ready to watch a man, wearing a bowl for a hat, sucking juice through a knife, stand up to an oppressive pelican. Rated G. The introduction is a request to suspend a series of beliefs so that this fiction may be believable. It's like saying, for your enjoyment, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. And while this is fairly realistic, it is still Crichton's world setting. We are being given a piece of fiction to understand here. So as gravelly voice trailer guy would say, in a world where scientists have no ethics, science knows no limits, 
and people are playing with technologies that affect every living thing on Earth, where genetic research continues at a more furious pace than ever, but done in secret and in haste and for profit. One man in the most remote region of Central America will create an incident and fewer than 20 people will witness it. Of those, only a handful will survive. This is your introduction to the InGen incident. So how does this connect with what we discussed in our previous episode, the epigraphs? Of the two epigraphs from last week, Erwin Chargaff's caution against meddling with new forms of life is certainly connected to this introduction. This continues and expands upon the theme of there being devastating consequences to meddling in biotechnology. This introduction elevates the cause for concern, relates it specifically to the world we live in, heightens the consequences, and even alludes to a devastating case study of which only a few people have been allowed to speak. We have a couple, I don't want to say characters introduced, but we have International Genetics Technologies Incorporated, or InGen, uh, given to us for the first time, and Daniel Ross of Cowan, Swain and Ross, a law firm that settled lawsuits and issued non-disclosure agreements, is introduced to us as well. We get a couple of allusions. We have Galileo, uh, James Watson, Francis Crick, Robert Swanson, Herbert Boyer, or Hubert Boyer, or some combination of those two, Genetech, and the University of California. In terms of stylistic techniques, I think the, the application of foreshadowing is incredible. Thematically, I think that we're talking about a misuse of power here. There's a cautionary tale being told of power and responsibility like we've heard over and over in the Spider-Man movies. This is perhaps a cautionary tale on what happens if you misuse power or act irresponsibly with it. So this is kind of a turn on that. Some questions that arise for me during this reading include whether or not we can view the biotech industry through Malcolm's portrayal of chaos theory. The primary issue outlined by Crichton is that the industry has become, quote, broad-based with more than 500 companies and thousands of labs doing undocumented, unregulated work, most of it in secret. In Malcolm's description of chaos theory, there are too many variables to make for an accurate prediction of what to expect. So when he's doing his modeling, he says the more variables make things too unpredictable and that the initial circumstances also lead to the, to, to the chaos. This leads to catastrophic collapse. So perhaps there's something to keep an eye on here, that there is a parallel between the industry itself and chaos theory, that we could read more into this. And after reading Crichton's issues with his perception of the biotech industry, I think we can see that he's used his characterization of the biotech industry to characterize his writing of John Hammond. So we'll keep an eye on that going forward as well. I know Hammond's motivations are laid bare in the Henry Wu flashbacks, and I think that there's a case to be argued that Hammond is Crichton's personification of the biotech industry. And I think he outlines what those characters are here in this introduction. Have we also therefore been introduced unwittingly to John Hammond as well? I think he personifies the capital capitalist unregulated biomolecular industry and he woos pure scientists away for capitalist purposes. And in fact, it sounds like Hammond meeting Wu sounds like a direct allusion to Swanson, according to this book famously, recruiting Hibert to make Genetech. So that's the end of my discussion on the introduction, uh, which also brings us to the end of this episode. 
Thanks to my guests today, Phil and Lindsay Longpray. They were incredibly forthcoming and brave to come on this maiden voyage with me, and I couldn't appreciate it more. Thanks, guys. And thank you for joining me and listening in. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything that you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park Cast is a part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur to intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting schickens.blogspot.ca or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Sick Parkcast, the Jurassic Park Parkcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too. Until next time. Sacrifice to the inhuman creature. Darkness spreads across the land. A thousand years unending torment. Feel your hatred take